You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we? Yeah, everybody's doing good this morning? You look good. You have that going for you, so that's great. Uh, it's really good to see you guys this morning. If you're a guest, my name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a pleasure, as always, uh, to get to be with you as we open up God's Word together to be more molded and made into the image of Jesus and the people that He is calling us to be through His Word. Uh, so to set us up this morning, I want to put a little imaginary scenario in your mind. Uh, imagine that you go to life group this week, and someone says something that you disagree with. Outlandish, I know. I mean, just a shocking. Like, it would never happen in any of your groups. I know this. But just for the sake of argument, hypothetically speaking, let's say that that were to happen. Maybe they show up and say, hey, guys, I mean, I know I'm a Christian and we're all Christians here, but let's be honest. Jesus rising from the grave, literally, I think we all know that is kind of foolish. Like, we've advanced beyond that at this point. We don't have to believe in silly things like that anymore, right? What do you do in that situation? Do you engage it? Do you just kind of shrug it off? Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? How do, you, how do you handle that hypothetical scenario? Now, admittedly, maybe that one's too easy for you, so let's try to press it in a little bit differently. What if, uh, what if they show up and say, hey, I don't think you can be a faithful Christian and vote for X? We a little bit more on the nose now? We've been there? What if, uh, what if it's something like, hey, I, I don't think a real Christian would ever send their kids to public school? How do we feel about that one? What do we do? Are we uncomfortable yet? Yeah? yeah? Okay, well, I'm not done. How about this one? Uh, I don't think you can really love Jesus and wear a mask. Are we okay? Again, hypothetical scenario. I've never said that. It probably has never happened. Probably has never happened in your groups. But what do we do when those scenarios arise? What do we do when we encounter significant disagreement about our faith or our practice? How do we know what to make a big deal out of and what not to? Believe it or not, that's where our next stop in Acts is actually going to take us. Now, Luke's narrative doesn't cover all that the early church did, but it does cover pivotal moments in the early church's life. And chapter 15 is no different. In Acts 15, the church actually encounters an issue that could have significantly derailed them and what they were about on earth, a theological debate and conflict that really threatened to split them apart, one that would actually trouble them for years to come. But the conclusions that they come to and how they handle I think are very, very important for us. Now, I know that there are some of us in the room this morning who love a good argument. So when I said theological debate, you like perked all the way up, like you're ready to go. And I'll be honest with you, today is going to be a real treat for you. But for the rest of us, it'll also be helpful, okay? And I want you to stay with me. It'll also be helpful because we're going to get some coaching on how to deal with people like you, all right? So it's really going to be a win-win for everybody in the room today, okay? So I want you to hang with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at this theological debate together. If you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, To set us up a little bit as we get in, we're going to pick up in verse 1, but uh, you'll remember that a few weeks ago, we studied the story of a guy named Cornelius, a Gentile Roman centurion and his 
Gentile friends and family who came to faith in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit uh, like the Jewish Christians before them. And we saw how this was a pretty big moment for the church because it emphatically revealed that the gospel was not just for one particular group of people, the Jews, but God was creating a kingdom made up of every tribe and every nation and every tongue on planet earth. Uh, now, all of that doesn't probably sound all that abnormal to us because we're 21st century Americans and many of whom, most of whom are not ethnically Jewish. Uh, so we're all basically Gentile believers if we're followers of Jesus. So we've never thought otherwise about Christianity. We don't think there's any issue with this, but that is not how it actually was early on for the church. This movement of God to the Gentiles raised serious questions and issues for this early body of believers on all sorts of levels, theologically, culturally, ethically, it was a big deal. And in Acts 15, we see it all basically come to a head in one pivotal moment. So let's pick up in verse one. This is what it reads. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is taking place in Antioch, and you heard about that church from Taylor a few weeks ago. They were a thoroughly diverse church with many, many Gentile believers. Now, circumcision, if you don't know, was given by God to the Jewish people through Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. And it was this sign to reveal to the world their separation from the rest of the world as God's chosen people. And this was something that was very fundamental to the Jewish identity, this notion of being set apart and being God's chosen people in out of the, all the peoples in the entire world. Now, how did people know whether or not the Jewish folks had this sign or not? Your guess is as good as mine, okay? Uh, all I know is I would not want that host team responsibility, okay? Like, that's just not what I want to be doing. And for the record, that is the only joke about that I'm going to make today, and I would like us all to appreciate how much restraint and maturity that even shows for me, okay? That's it. Thank you. Appreciate it. But here's the deal. Now Jesus has come as this promised Jewish Messiah. He's come, but he's bringing in all of these non-Jewish people as a part of the people of God. So the question now naturally arises, how Jewish then does someone have to be in order to be a Christian? If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he's come to God's people, but he's bringing in all these non-Jewish folks, what does it need to look like for them now if they're going to be a part of God's people too? And so some of these new Jewish Christians are hearing about these Gentile believers and they're saying, look, you got to be all the way Jewish. If you're going to be a part of God's people, you have to be all the way Jewish. It's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be a part of God's people and you really want to be saved and secure, then you've got to be Jewish as well which obviously would have meant some pretty drastic and not to mention painful things, particularly for any Gentile man who would come to faith. And notice how black and white they make it. They say, you cannot be saved unless you do this. Your very salvation depends on whether or not you become Jewish like we are. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, which is just Bible talk for things got really heated, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question, which, quick note, that was a really long trip. It was roughly like 300 miles. And I bring that up just to say that this tells us that this was a very, very big deal if they were willing to travel all that way to discuss it. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to, him, said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about what happened with Cornelius a while back. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So, as I just mentioned, fundamental to Jewish identity was this notion of being set apart as God's chosen people. And along with circumcision, God gave them the Torah or the law to lay out for them how exactly that distinctiveness should look. There were roughly 611 or 613, depending on how you count, laws that the Torah covered that covered all kinds of things. Things like what these people should eat, what they should not eat, how to worship, how not to worship, what to do about disease and a bunch of other things. And circumcision was a part of this. And the question about circumcision isn't just about circumcision itself, but it's about all of it. How much of all of these Jewish things does a person need to keep? And notice Peter's argument. God has set them apart. He's cleansed them and made them righteous through faith, just like us, regardless of their adherence to these things. They didn't need to keep them for God to save them, and honestly, neither did we. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't ever all that good at it either, and I was born a Jew. Like, I could never keep straight how far I could go on a Sabbath, or whether or not turkey bacon was cool, because it's, I guess, technically bacon, and for the record, no. No, it's not. Ever. It's not ever. But he's saying, no matter how hard I tried, I never felt like I was doing enough. And if we could barely, if we as Jews could barely keep these laws and we were born Jews, why would we project that burden onto these Gentile believers? And here's the big one, verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He says, we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus's finished work for us, not the continuation of our own, not by what we do, but only by faith in what he has done. And for what it's worth, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, this is the thing you have to hear, that Christianity is not about you doing a bunch of good things to sort of earn your way into the kingdom of God. It's not about you doing things to make God smile at you and accept you one day. It's not even doing things to show God how sorry you are for all the bad things you've done, so hopefully he'll forgive you. No, Christianity is about trusting in what Jesus has done for you, how Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourselves how he lived the righteous life that we were made for, how he died the death for sin that we all deserved, and how he was raised to new life to give us new life now. Not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything to merit it, but just as a free gift of his grace. And I got to take a moment here and just talk about this because it is absolutely critical that you are clear on this. It is critical that we as God's people are clear on this. So through the years, our family of churches has baptized lots of people, former atheists, drug addicts, people caught up in the new age and all sorts of things. But, but can I tell you the number one story that we have seen time and time again? It goes something like this. It goes something like, I was brought up in church. I, went, I was there virtually every Sunday. I went to VBS. I did all the youth camps and youth group and that sort of things but I never really heard the message of Jesus Christ. I never really knew the gospel. And for some of those stories, they heard it, but they didn't hear it. You know what I mean? 
By that I mean, by that I mean, like it was preached around them, but they never really heard it for themselves until much later. And that's one thing. But sadly, others grew up in the church and they never really heard it at all. But the message of Jesus for them just sort of got tangled up in all of these other sort of auxiliary things. They heard messages about being a good person or that God just wanted to bless them if they would acknowledge his existence, or messages about some sort of conservative political agenda and being on the right side of society, messages to simply avoid all those terrible things that sinful people do, like drink alcohol and watch rated R movies and girls who swear and chew dip and that sort of thing. Their whole view of Christianity, their whole view of Christianity was this sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism, where God just wanted you to be good and nice to others and be on his team. And as long as you did, you were going to go to heaven when you die and God would be there for you when you needed him to give you a good life and help you feel better about yourself. And this is what they thought Christianity was all about. And somewhere along the way, praise God, he just woke them up. He helped them see that this is not it and showed them the real story. And for what it's worth, I praise God for those stories, man, just as much as the others, because the truth is, is that it is so easy for religion to blind. It is so easy for religion to blind you. It can be so easy to hear it, but not really hear it. To think that being a Christian just means I do these certain things or support this particular agenda or whatever and completely miss the good news of the gospel in the process. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for us as a church. I want to do everything in my power to tell each and every one of us that you are not saved by what you do. You are not saved by what you do. You are not saved because you come to this church. You are not saved because you give or because you read your Bible. You are not saved because you vote a conservative agenda or a progressive one for that matter. You are not saved because you are a good parent or run with the right crowd or are the type of person that other people would like to be. That doesn't save you. You are saved by grace and grace alone. There is nothing that you or I add to it. And that is fantastic news because if you didn't contribute anything to it, then there is nothing you can do to take it away either. You hear me? There is nothing you can do to lose it. And that is precisely the point that Peter is making. And the apostles see it. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and, and I will restore it. Uh, excuse me. And I will restore it. The, rem the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. And I wanted to draw our attention to that because it's important. James is quoting a passage from the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. He's saying, guys, this is actually what God said would happen the entire time. He said he was going to do this, that being Jewish wasn't going to be the end-all, be-all of God's people, but that he was going to bring the Gentiles in, and that is precisely what he's doing. And then verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. 
My conclusion is we shouldn't trouble them. We shouldn't add this additional burden to them, but welcome them into the family of God. Now, let's pause here for a bit, because as I said, this text is a great example of how the church navigated an important and contentious issue. Fundamentally, what they're having to sort through here is what is essential to our faith and what isn't? What is the most important stuff and what's not? What can we agree to disagree on? And where do we actually have to draw a dividing line? This is something that Baptist theologian Al Mohler calls theological triage. So think about it like when patients enter the ER and doctors have to assess them by levels of urgency. He says there are some things that we have to consider urgent issues, things that truly and deeply matter for our faith and our unity as believers, things that are uncompromisable to the Christian faith. But then there are other things of lesser importance, things that still deserve our attention, but they aren't paramount like those first things. And yet there are still others that some folks should just pop some Tylenol for and get over. And the way we teach it in the Midtown class is we say the church here is having to decide what are close-handed issues and what are open-handed issues. Close-handed meaning the non-negotiable things, the things that you have to believe to be a Christian, and open-handed being the ideas or doctrines or practices that we can agree to disagree on, things that we can discuss, even have robust debate about, but don't necessarily have to sever our relationships together. And here's why I want to stop and talk about this, because we live in an age, and I think you all know this, we live in an age that divides over virtually every little thing everything. We see this in pop culture all the time. Like you cannot turn on the news without seeing this polarization, but it exists even in the church where we argue and split over all sorts of things. The way that we worship, how we baptize, the way that we vote, the color of the carpet. And yes, that's a real one. We've got stories. Given the fact that in John 17, 23, Jesus prays for us saying that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Given the fact that here Jesus prays for our unity, it seems like it would be very helpful for us to have some sort of framework for figuring these things out, lest we argue and divide over every little thing. Jerry Brashear is a systematic theologian from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. I think he helpfully breaks it down even further into some different categories, and I especially like the language that he uses. I think it's really helpful. And so what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to give them with you too, because I think it's going to be helpful for you as well to see some theological triage for your own. He says when it comes to disagreement, starting from the most important to the less important or to the least important, he says there are things that we die for, things that we divide for things we debate for, and things we decide for. So category one is things that we die for. And this is the most important category, the close-handed stuff. It's the stuff that actually determines whether or not you're a Christian. These are truths that we would gladly and willingly give our lives for, the absolute essentials of our faith. These are beliefs and tenets within Christianity that separate us from other people and belief systems. It's not, and that's not knocking people who believe other things. We love them and want Jesus for them. But the point is, is that to be a Christian fundamentally means some certain things. This would include things like Jesus is God, that he is God and there is no other. It would include his atoning death for sin and his literal resurrection. This is what the apostles hold as primary in Acts 15, that Jesus is the savior of the world and there is no other. 
Or as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the stuff in category one and where we have to draw the hardest line because that's what you must believe in order to be a Christian. That's what makes us us. But then there's category two, divide for And these are things that still fall in the close-handed category for us, things that don't necessarily determine whether or not you're a Christian, but are massively important to your faith and discipleship. Things that because of Jesus, we do actually have to draw a line for. Things that if somebody wants to be a Christian, do, do they need to place their faith in Jesus and also believe these things? Well, we'd say no, not necessarily, but it's a really big, big deal if you don't. And if you don't, you're going to have a hard time following Jesus, period. And you're probably not going to want to be a part of our church if you hold them. These would be things like the authority of Scripture. Not believing that Scripture is authoritative doesn't mean you don't have faith in Jesus. But it will mean that your faith is in serious danger if you don't. You won't have a firm foundation to stand on. You won't be following the example of Jesus that he set before you who held Scripture as divinely authoritative. And you're going to constantly be bothered by us because we look to the scriptures as our authoritative and reliable source for everything that we believe and practice. It'd also be things like the biblical sexual ethic, that sex is exclusively meant for a man and a woman in the context of covenant marriage. Do you have to believe that in order to, uh, in order to have faith in Jesus? No. But there are major problems if you don't. For one, you won't be in agreement with Jesus and fly in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture. But for two, you'll wind up calling what God calls evil good and what God calls good evil. And that is a dangerous team to be on. And hear me, I'm not talking about someone who doesn't believe in Jesus and holds these beliefs. In no way should it be expected that someone who doesn't trust Jesus would believe these things. But if you believe in Jesus then there is this expectation that we would also believe the things that Jesus believes and that we would submit our lives to him and what he says in all things. That's the expectation. Makes it close-handed. So that's category one and two. Everybody with me so far? We okay? We good? From here, we move into the more open-handed stuff, the first of which Brashears calls the debate for category. And these are secondary doctrines or practices that faithful Christians might possibly come to different convictions and conclusions about. Things that matter, sure, but aren't essential. Things like, what is baptism? And how should it be administered? Should only those who profess faith in Christ be baptized? Or can children of believing parents be baptized too? What is the role and presence of spiritual gifts? Does the Holy Spirit still gift his people in all the ways that we see in Scripture with tongues and prophecy and miracles? And if so, how should those gifts be used in the church? How should that function? Things like who can or cannot preach on Sundays or who can or cannot be a pastor. And to be clear, these things are important on some levels. They are things that the church has to make a decision on in order to function. But does your position on these things have anything to do with your salvation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They aren't things that determine whether or not a person is a Christian, and they aren't things that necessarily have to create division with others in the body of Christ. They are things we can discuss. They are things we can wrestle with and at times come to different conclusions on, but we can still follow Jesus arm in arm together, regardless of what we think about these things. 
And for what it's worth, this is one of the things that I love about our church. I love this because we have a whole host of folks from all kinds of different theological backgrounds here. Some charismatic, some deeply Presbyterian, and naturally a good old swath of recovering Southern Baptists. And I love it. I love it. All of which have differing opinions on these things, but we don't let that destroy who we are. We don't let that destroy who we are, and I think that is beautiful. And lastly, there's the decide for category, and this is the least important category. Here we're simply talking about matters of personal preference or conscience, things that don't affect your salvation in any way, things that are relatively unessential for your discipleship or how the church is meant to function, and things that the Bible doesn't give a lot of thought or attention to, but things that you, on the other hand, might, things that you might think about a lot, things like the style of worship we have on Sundays or the style of preaching, how you choose to educate your kids, whether or not you choose to go to public school or private school or homeschool or whatever, things like how you vote in an upcoming election or the personal decisions you make on alcohol consumption or what you watch on TV and many, many, many more. And all of that is a matter of personal conscience and preference. And when it comes to these things, biblically speaking, there is a ton of freedom. But what ought to drive our thoughts for this category is the question, what's going to be best for the mission of God? What decisions do I need to make here that are actually going to help me best reflect Jesus to those around me and push the mission of God forward? And this absolutely drives Paul's thinking on many of these things. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, whatever is going to be helpful for the faith of others, that is going to be the thing that I am going to do. I'm going to allow that to drive the decisions I make on these preferential things. In fact, in just the next uh, chapter of Acts, Paul circumcises Timothy, which might make you go, wait a minute, what? Like, didn't you just get in a fight about not having to do that? Like, what, what are we doing here? But he does it, we find, for the sake of God's mission. And as we'll see in a moment, that's what drives the apostles' response to Antioch as well. Now, look, I know that's a lot to digest. I know I just gave you a whole lot to kind of sit and think through. But our question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we're able to have these categories and see things through this lens? Because not everything is a top-tier issue. You hear me? Not everything is a top-tier issue. Not everything is of the utmost importance. There are mountains and there are molehills. And as Christians, it is imperative that we know the right ones to die on. You hear me? Because if we don't, then bare minimum, like the Jews in Acts 15 before us, we're going to place a lot of unnecessary obstacles in the way of others coming to know Jesus. And at worst, we might even find ourselves preaching a gospel that is not the gospel at all. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The gospel is we are saved by grace and by grace alone. 
And this entire incident in Acts 15 is a warning to us to guard against the temptation to add to that, to add something to what Jesus has done for us, to say, no, 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 no. It's not grace alone, but it's grace and these things. You need to believe in Jesus, and you also need to get in the pattern of the way I do life. And you also need to believe how I believe on these secondary matters. And you also need to have your life look this way and do these certain things and add to it. Then you can really be saved. Then you can really be secure. To say to ourselves and others that to be a Christian, to belong to the church, to be really saved, you must trust and follow Jesus. Plus, you must believe and do some other stuff too. You must trust and follow Jesus and believe these secondary things the way that I do. You must trust and follow Jesus. Plus, make these particular parenting decisions for your family. You must trust and follow Jesus. Plus, vote like this. You must trust and follow Jesus, plus behave this way, or speak this way, or live this lifestyle, or fill in the blank with any number of those personal conscience or preference type ideas. And hear me, it's not that those things don't matter. Don't, don't mishear me. It's not that those things don't matter. It's not that those things aren't even good. But when we elevate them to primary we get in the way of the gospel and what God is doing in our world. We get in God's way. It leads people to think, well, I love Jesus and want to follow him. I want his salvation, but I don't do those things, or I don't vote like that, or I don't think this way. So I guess Jesus just isn't for me. I guess he's not for me. And don't mishear me. There are things that we have to draw a line on. There are, but not Everything falls into that category. And knowing and upholding the difference is absolutely crucial. It's crucial. And some of us have so many lines and divisions that our faith looks like a calculus problem. And nobody likes a calculus problem, okay? <laughs> we originally thought about naming this sermon the quickest way to destroy a church because of this. Because if you want to break apart fellowship, if you want to prevent mission, if you want to become a community that slowly decays, then drift from being a community where the gospel of Jesus is the most primary and become a community that elevates lesser things to top-level importance. And just watch what happens. Just watch what happens. A few years ago, I was preaching a sermon from the last two chapters of the book of Job about how God addresses Job's questions by displaying his greatness, that God is greater than our minds can comprehend, and that when we have all of these questions for him, we need to remember who it is that we're talking to, that he's God who knows more, who's seen more, who's done more, who holds more power than we could ever imagine. And in it, I made a reference to what scientists think about the age of the earth and how God is even greater than that. And it was a very small and unessential moment in the sermon. The next week, I got a phone call telling me that a guy and his family were leaving our church because of that comment. And he said, in their words, they're leaving because I don't preach the Bible, and they can't belong to a group that doesn't believe the Bible. And I was, in a word, dumbfounded because I was preaching the Bible, very literally, right? Like, I was very much so preaching the Bible. I didn't even talk about what the Bible actually teaches on creation. I was just bringing this up for an illustration, but for two, because the guy who was leaving wasn't even the one who called me to talk about it. He just rolled out. No conversation, no questions to get clarification. He just heard me say one sentence and concluded that I was a heretic. 
Now, no disrespect for him, to him. Like, I know he was just doing what he thought was best for his family. I get it. But I don't think that's the type of thing that Jesus had in mind when he prayed for us. But this is what happens when tertiary matters become primary. Welcoming and belonging to a diverse group of people isn't just difficult. It's an impossibility. And everyone is one ill-timed sentence away from being deemed illegitimate. When it comes to the debate for and decide for things, everyone is welcome to have thoughts and convictions and opinions. You're welcome to have preferences on how the church operates and what you think is best. I have them too. But do we have the self-awareness to know that this is not something worth dying or dividing for? Like, are you conscious of the fact that if you are close-handed with your preferences on how the music is done or how someone expresses their worship or close-handed on how someone thinks about the political or cultural landscape or the arguable things revealed in Scripture, that you're bumping it up to a level that God doesn't? And are we willing to put those things in their appropriate place for the sake of others so that we can remove obstacles, love people, and let the mission of God go forward. And as I said a few moments ago, this is precisely the encouragement that the early church gives. James goes on back in verse 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from, uh, and from blood. From, for from ancient generations, Moses has, been in, uh, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues, which might sound strange in like a really random list to you, like don't have immoral sex and don't strangle animals. What are we even doing here? Like where, where did that come from? So let me, let me explain. In the pagan world, extramarital sex was commonly accepted as the norm. And so James is saying, look, the moral laws of God don't change. Those are things that you still need to uphold. Keep them. You say, well, why only mention that one? It's just because that one was the one that was most commonly accepted. He didn't have to say the other ones. It's like saying, hey, you're saved by grace through faith. And when it comes to how you live your life, just strive to be holy. He's still saying, strive for holiness in how you live and what you do. And as far as the not eating meat strangled from, uh, strangled from animals and from blood and food polluted to, uh, by idols, like those were things that would have been offensive to the Jews. It would have caused fellowship problems. That's why he references the law being read. All the Jews were raised that way is what he's saying. Moses is read in every city. He's saying, listen, this has been taught for forever. The people that you're around, like this is how they've been brought up. Don't make it difficult for them to be Christians either. Be sensitive to where they're coming from because they have cultural sensitivities too. Be gracious towards them and create a space to welcome them. Essentially, it's just a long way of saying, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Trust Jesus, follow God's moral commands, and consider God's mission and the faith of those around you in what you do. Let that be your marching order. And here's how it ends. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of saying, Jesus is enough. We are all in this together. Let's push forward alongside one another. And so where does that leave us? I think the words of Lutheran theologian Peter Maeterlin are fitting. He says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. That's our aim. 
that's who we want to be as God's people. And that is the way we learn to navigate all the difficulty and disagreement that will come our way. To remember that we are saved by grace through faith. And that's the main thing, that Jesus is who he said he is. And he has done what he said, what what he came to do. He has saved us. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that is the main thing. That is what unites us. And like the church in Antioch before us, we can praise God and unite around that simple fact, no matter what other differences we may have. We can praise Jesus that he has saved us, not based on our works, but on his finished work. We can praise Jesus that he has made us family together with people that we would have never imagined it to be possible with, but actually needed. We can praise Jesus that he has given us his word to love and to live by so that we can look more like him. And we can praise Jesus as the mission of God goes forward in our midst. So at the end of the day, Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's trust Jesus. Let's follow what God says. And let's consider the mission of God and the faith of others in what we do. For our good, for the sake of our community, and for God's glory.